This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Caleb F., Sam M., Joanna, Emmeline, and Amy. First, we'll take a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Caleb F. He asks, what exactly is fasting? Caleb, fasting is abstaining from something, typically food, for a period of time in order to draw closer to God. We often call fasting a spiritual discipline. Because it takes discipline to subdue the desires of the body, but when we do this, we can focus more clearly on spiritual things. Why would you want to fast? It's a good question. Ordinarily, we're ruled by the needs of our bodies. We eat, we sleep, we play, and all because we need to, because your body depends on these things in order to live. And these are all good things, just like having a body is good. We know this because God gave us bodies, and Jesus himself has a body. But if you only focus on the body, you neglect the spirit. And sin often uses the needs of the body to draw us away from spiritual life. So, it's good to fast as a way of putting the needs of the body in perspective. We deny ourselves physical things to focus on spiritual things. Of course, this temporary fasting also makes us appreciate the blessings of the physical world, too, which we tend to take for granted. And now Sam M. asks, Do we have the right to be mad at Adam and Eve for bringing sin into the world? Well, a funny thing about anger, Sam, is that we tend to feel it whether we have a right to or not. And sometimes it's easy to understand why people get mad, even if technically they don't have a right to. Adam and Eve's disobedience ushered in the reign of sin and death. And yes, that's something to be angry about. All too often, we're tempted to accept sin, and for that matter, death, as just a normal part of life. But we shouldn't make peace with sin and death. In that sense, feeling anger toward sin and toward our first parents, Adam and Eve, who were the first human beings to sin, does make some sense. However, there's another thing that we need to consider. Uh, Whether or not we're angry at people for what they do often depends on whether we'd have done the same thing in their situation. For example, if someone backs into my car in a dark parking lot at night, I might get angry that my car has been damaged. But I'm also aware that in the dark, a mistake like that is easy to make. And if I made it, I'd hope that people would be understanding. So my sympathy, hopefully, takes the edge off of my anger. And when it comes to Adam and Eve, I think we can all sympathize. The Bible depicts the fall as a representative act. 
It's not that these two people messed up, but if only we'd had different people in their place, everything would have been fine. The implication is that any of us in their situation would have made the same mistake. And I think that helps us see them in a different light. Whenever you feel yourself getting angry at other people for their sin, remember that you're a sinner too, and that you could easily make the same mistakes. That's not an excuse for doing wrong, but it should give us sympathy with one another so that we can be quick to forgive. Now it's time for the big question, which comes this time from Joanna, so let's give her a round of applause. Here's Joanna's question. Why doesn't the Bible include the last part of the Lord's Prayer? I had a feeling, Joanna, that when I preached about the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, we would get some questions. After all, we recite this prayer every week at church. We know it by heart and often repeat it in whole or in part when we pray day to day. But something surprising happens when you find the text of the Lord's Prayer in the Bible. The prayer that we pray isn't exactly the same as the text in Matthew's Gospel. Now, before I explain why that is, let me point out something that's really important. Jesus doesn't give us the Lord's Prayer to repeat word for word. It's okay to do that, but in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving us an example. He's showing us a pattern of how to pray. He's not just giving us words to repeat. You don't have to copy the Lord's Prayer word for word. It's okay to include other things, other petitions, or to ask for the same things but in different words. People sometimes refer to the Lord's Prayer as the model prayer, and that's why, because it's a model for us in how to pray. It's not just a formula. Now, with that in mind, there are two big questions that we should consider. The first one is why the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 is not identical to the shorter version that we find in Luke chapter 11. And the second question is why the last part of the prayer, uh, the words for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever, amen, is not included in either one, not in Matthew and not in Luke. We'll start with the differences between Matthew and Luke. When Jesus went through the land teaching, he gave a lot of talks. And when you give a lot of talks to different groups, you often repeat the same things. In Matthew, Jesus teaches the people about prayer during the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, later on, he's answering some questions from disciples, and one of the things they ask is specifically is, how, how do we pray? Now, my guess is that any time the subject of prayer came up, Jesus would give an example for how to pray, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter, and that example would look more or less like what we see here in Matthew or in Luke. In Matthew, he gives us a, a longer one. In Luke, it's slightly shorter. Now, because of the differences in length between the two, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we tend to go with the longer version that way we get more of the example to uh, have before our eyes. Now, that second question is an important one, too. Why doesn't the Lord's Prayer in Scripture include the ending? That seems like a pretty big deal to leave it out. Well, 
there's a technical term for that ending. It's called a doxology. And a doxology is a special kind of praise to God. We find doxologies throughout Scripture. In the New Testament, in Paul's epistles, for example, he often writes little doxologies at the end of his big theological statements. It's like he's saying something exciting about God, and then he adds a little word of praise directed to God. And that's essentially what's happening here. In other words, of this doxology that's used to close the prayer, very similar to words you would find in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. In the early church, Christians would pray the Lord's Prayer, and they would add this doxology, these words of praise, at the end of it. In fact, it was so common for them to do this that in one of the earliest instruction books we have of Christian doctrine, a book called the Didache, that's the way they present the Lord's Prayer, with that doxology included at the end. And over time, that became the tradition in the church to always include that doxology after you pray the Lord's Prayer. So now we kind of think of it all as part of the same thing. Now, there are some other variations that we could talk about. For example, because of the differences in English translations, some people will say, forgive us our trespasses, while others will say, forgive us our debts. Uh, Some churches use a more modernized version of the wording, saying, uh, for example, your kingdom come instead of thy kingdom come. And that is perfectly fine, because remember, Jesus didn't give us a formula to repeat word for word. He gave us an example of the kind of thoughts and words that we should pray. And the reason why we repeat that and the reason why we include it in our worship services is so that we'll all know that by heart, not just so that we can recite it, but so that we can use it when we pray as an example of the way to pray and the kinds of things to pray for. In fact, I think the fact that there are these differences that we can be aware of helps us to remember that the Lord's Prayer is a model. It's not just a mantra. We don't repeat it over and over again as if the important thing is just to get the words right, and if you say them just the right way, God has to listen. Instead, we say the Lord's Prayer and we pray the Lord's Prayer to focus our hearts on what the words actually mean. And now, before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. Our first fun question comes from Emmeline. She asks, did people in the Bible like Moses and Abraham have a sense of humor, or were they always really serious and holy? First of all, Emmeline, I want to wish you a happy birthday. In fact, two of our frequent contributors have recently had important birthdays. Both Emmeline and Benton are now 13 years old. Teenagers. Just remember, with great power comes great responsibility. The teenage years are full of great power, but also great responsibility. Now, to answer your question, people in the Bible were first and foremost people. They were human beings, just like us. There are a lot of differences, thanks to time and culture, but essentially what's true of us would have been true of them, too. The Bible doesn't pass down to us any hilarious jokes that Moses told or any funny stories that Abraham liked to share, but it's a safe bet that they both had a sense of humor. Of course, humor is subjective. We don't all laugh at the same thing. 
My guess is that what seemed funny to, for example, a shepherd in ancient Israel might not seem that funny to us, or vice versa. But they would have laughed as much as we do. And the Bible itself is full of what you might think of as the tools of comedy. Irony and satire, contrasting observations, occasionally wordplay. I gave an example of this recently, quoting Elijah's mockery of the priests of Baal, which is kind of hilarious. Elijah definitely had to have a sense of humor to say those things, though I don't think the priests found it very funny. And now Amy asks, how old is your cat? Amy, I had to think about this for a minute because our cat Tilda is such a part of our lives now that it feels like she's been with us forever. But the fact is, we've only had her for three months and she was just four months old when we picked her up. If you add that up, it turns out that she's just seven months old. (laughs) However, Tilda is about to get a lot, lot older really quick because something exciting is happening this week. We are going to pick up a second cat, a little brother for Tilda, and he's just four months old now. Now, having to keep up with him is going to make Tilda feel a lot older than she is. That's what happens when there's a new baby in the house, as you may know. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.